Okay, it should be it should be ready here in just a second. Okay. All right, welcome everybody. I'm your host, David Garbett, and you're watching another episode of O2 and You, the uh, bi-weekly live stream and podcast from O2 Utah, a nonprofit here uh, in Salt Lake focused on trying to improve environmental policy by participating in elections. And I'm very excited about our guest today who's coming on to talk about the uh, upcoming election specifically. Robert Gerke, uh, well-known columnist at the Salt Lake Tribune. I was going to say basically the Bob Woodward uh, oh, Salt Lake yeah. City. Can I say that, Robert? No, please don't say that. Oh, okay. I'm taking you down with that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Robert has been with the Salt Lake Tribune covering politics, uh, both here in the state and in Washington, DC for some time. Um, quickly, do you want to give us a little recap of your, when you started with the illustrious career? Yeah. I started, I started in the newspaper back business back when there were still newspapers. So, um, we, are. I, I got my start back in about 1995, uh, with the Associated Press out of college. Uh, worked for the Associated Press here initially in Salt Lake and then moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, to work for AP there for four years, uh, roughly. And then uh, th that's when the Tribune hired me um, to be their D.C. correspondent. I spent another roughly three years doing that in D.C. and then uh, got out of there, came back home and uh, have been working for the Tribune since, uh, here in Salt Lake ever since. Um, about three years ago, uh, they asked me if I'd be an opinion writer, a news columnist. So that was a bit of a transition, but uh, that's what I've been doing since about 2017. And uh, here we are. Still mostly, still almost doing largely, almost exclusively politics and state government, although I dabble in some other things here and there. Great. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah. Robert is. Uh, I think the hub for political information in the state frequently and the go-to guy for uh, any discussions about upcoming elections. So really excited to talk to you about, today our theme is really uh, prognosticating on uh, some of the things that we're seeing in the voting that's already happened and the lead up to election day next week and how that might play out um, in terms of who wins, who loses. And so let's just jump in straight to, you know, one of the most interesting races in this state, a congressional race, the fourth congressional district. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts in that race. Well, so if you remember two years ago, I'm sure everybody remembers two years ago, Ben McAdams and Mia Love had a tough, tough competition in, in the fourth district. It's always been a tight race. Jim Matheson narrowly uh, won it, uh, narrowly beat Mia Love the first time that she ran. Uh, the McAdams Love race two years ago was historically close. I mean, 700 votes separated the two. Um, so this time we've got Ben McAdams, Burgess Owens. The district is still very evenly split. It leans Republican, but you can win it in the middle with uh, by 
not appealing necessarily to the right or to the left, but winning the unaffiliated voters in the middle. And that's where, where Ben's really focused his energy. Burgess Owens has tried to run to the right. He's aligned himself with Donald Trump um, and that creates an interesting dynamic. The polling in this race is kind of a little bit all over the place. It's had uh, the, the Utah Debate Commission had a poll that had uh, McAdams up 10. Um, the Desert News recently had a poll that had Burgess Owens up one, which is basically in, you know, in the margin of error, it's a tie. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to get a good read on it. There's been a ton of money spent in this race. I think we're up, up close to, you know, 10 to $11 million in this race so far. Um, a lot of it from the National, uh, National Party, the outside uh, PACs have been pouring money into it. Just uh, if you haven't seen a thousand Burgess Owens or Ben McAdams ads, you're uh, living in a, a bunker somewhere, I think. So, um, so, but that just sort of illustrates how close this race is going to be. I think, um, you know, I, my, my gut tells me that McAdams probably has a, a, an advantage. Um, I think it could be interesting to see this as kind of a referendum on President Trump in the fourth district. Uh, you know, it's, it's the district in the state where Trump is the least popular. And, and I think Owens has aligned himself so tightly with the president that, that he's hoping that that brings out, you know, a, a, a huge voter turnout. And we are seeing huge voter turnout. We don't know yet if those are Burgess Owens voters or Ben McAdams voters. Um, and, and on the flip side of that equation, part of the reason Ben was able to win two years ago against Mia Love was because of all of the, those ballot initiatives brought tens of thousands of voters who wouldn't otherwise vote in a midterm election out and, and you know, it, it was able to put, a, put them over the top. So um, it's hard to say exactly who big voter turnout benefits. My, my gut tells me it probably benefits McAdams, but it also kind of depends largely on where those voters are. He's, you know, he does well in the Salt Lake County, less well in Utah County and Juab County. So it's gonna be, this one's gonna be the one to watch on election night. I, I have a lot of questions. Would be interested to hear your, your thoughts on this race. Um, you know, one is Republicans in that district, and this is both with Ben and then, you know, I'm going to borrow from when Jim Matheson had that seat, mm -hmm. have consistently tried to run against both Ben and Jim with the message of, you know, who cares who this Democrat is that you're voting for? If you vote for them, you're voting for Nancy Pelosi. You're voting for a Democratic Speaker of the House. Doesn't seem like it's ever worked. Uh, I mean, I see that message coming out again. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what's different about the messaging this time that would help us to expect a different outcome? Well, I mean, I think part of, part of the reason you see that message brought up again and again is because Ben is a pretty small target. I mean, he's been vetted, he's you know, been county mayor. You're not gonna necessarily run down Ben McAdams. He's, he's kind of, you know, um, a, Pretty, he's got sort of the white rice of Utah politics, right? He's, he's unoffensive. And so, and so I think they try to tie him to the national party because if you look at where he stands on the issues, it's not necessarily out of touch with Utah, but if you can make him the embodiment of the national party, then you get the, those Republicans in line, right? The ones who are very much anti-Pelosi, anti-Chuck Schumer, anti-Joe Biden, anti-Hillary Clinton. They're gonna, they're gonna come back into your camp I think that works on, for the Republican side. I don't think it works as well in, in appealing to those unaffiliated voters. I think you've got to do a little bit more um, targeted messaging to try to convince them not that Ben McAdams is evil, but that you know your candidate, whether it was Mia Love before or or Burgess Owens this time, is 
in tune with the fourth district in those in the in the middle of the road voters. And so that's the that's the real challenge. And I think in this race, we've seen those outside groups and the McAdams campaign has, has uh, beat up Burgess Owens pretty bad too. And so I think he's been spent a lot of time on the defensive. I'm not sure he's been able to go out there and kind of say, well, here's why you should vote for Burgess Owens as opposed to voting against Ben McAdams. Um, I think the McAdams equals Pelosi thing, I think voters are smart enough to recognize one seat doesn't isn't necessarily going to flip the entire house or it's very unlikely that it's gonna flip the entire house. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's I, I think it's effective in a limited sense, but I don't think it's going to be overall uh, I, I carry the day. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I'm actually in that district now, which has been exciting to be in a, a congressional race. That, welcome, aren't we? Yeah, if it matters. And uh, certainly the messaging coming from Ben, there's a lot of focus on education. Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear testing. Um, also, you know, not so much through Ben, but through his proxies on Burgess Owens and financial uh, yeah. matters. But yeah, and I contrast that with what, what we see coming from Burgess, which seems to be a bit more, um, you know, I'm the standard bearer for Trump. If you are Republican, vote for me. And so I, and it's been what is it that motivates those independents? What, what is it that motivates those swing voters? I'm not sure that I'm seeing much from Burgess reaching to that group, but clearly Ben is. Right. I think I think Ben has his message finely tuned to the to those middle of the road unaffiliated voters, and to the you know roughly 10% of Republican votes, 12% of Republican votes he needs to win to. to I mean that's that's the calculus, right? You need you need about. 10 to 12 percent of Republican votes. You need the majority of the of the well about 60 percent of the unaffiliated, and then he needs the Democrats. And so I think he's tuned his message to those unaffiliated voters on on the issues of education. Uh, the the nuclear weapons testing thing was one that made, uh, Jim Matheson always ran on because it polled incredibly well. Nobody in Utah is in favor of nuclear weapons testing. And Burgess Owens kind of stepped in it at the beginning and has been trying to clean it up. But if you look at his, if you look at his his own campaign website, when he's trying to clean it up, he says he's he's against above ground nuclear testing. He still hasn't disavowed underground testing or renewed underground testing. And and it's it, it to the fact that we're still talking about this issue, you know, two months, three months after it was first raised kind of shows how effective it has been, how much it has stuck to him, and how he's been able to unable to get out from underneath it. I think it's a real problem for him. Um, whereas the issue, you know, the issue of education, obviously, for those suburban soccer mom voters who are, you know, the ones that Ben needs to get, that's going to be one of their top issues. Uh, yeah, and then he's all, there's also been some targeting of seniors, uh, I think, uh, you know, reliable voting blocks. So I think the message is, it has been, well, it was refined by Jim Matheson, and, and Ben has just kind of picked up the same message and run with it. Last question on the fourth congressional district. If Ben wins this race, do we see the legislature just give up on that seat and, and essentially write it off as a Democratic seat and pack it with Salt Lake and Summit County? If he wins it convincingly, you might see them do that. Obviously, we're heading into a new redistricting uh, in, you know, after the census results come out uh, next year. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that uh, there, there, 
The fourth district is still surrounded by heavily Republican districts. The third and the first in particular are, are, have about a 25% Republican advantage in them. And so you can still pull Republicans out of those districts and put them into, into the fourth district, make the fourth district more Republican leaning. Um, or they could just they could just say that you know they, they've given up. I, I it's hard to say what they're going to do, and it's hard to say what the dynamic is going to be with this new uh, redistricting commission and the recommendations that come out of there. If it departs wildly from what the redistricting commission recommends, that could be a political problem for the legislature. Um, they can be pretty inventive. They can be pretty creative when they're trying to pack and crack districts. And, and, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if they try to make the fourth district even more Republican, dial it up a little bit more huh. and see if they can knock him out. Huh. Speaking of uh, redistricting, two years ago, voters had uh, four different ballot initiatives in front of them and they passed three. One of those was this proposition four that we've been talking about an independent redistricting commission. The legislature took all three of those initiatives and change them substantially. substantially. Um, do you expect any backlash from voters? Do you think there's a connection um, that voters who turned out for the first time in 2018 saying they wanted to support medical marijuana are now feeling like this is their time to exact vengeance, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think obviously, as we mentioned when we were talking about the fourth district race two years ago, it was huge turnout. I mean tens of thousands of people who, many of whom had never voted before, voted for the first time for this medical marijuana and for the Medicaid expansion in particular. Um, I, I think there is some anger among those people. Now those people, um, are, they, are they gonna be angry enough to come out and vote again? And if they do, presumably they're gonna vote for McAdams. They gave him the boost in the first, uh, in 2018. I haven't seen as much of that uh, this year though, to be honest. That, that you know, targeting specific candidates, saying this legislator gutted the Medicaid bill or you know opposed the medical marijuana. I expected to see more of it, um, but this has been such a weird election. I, I think the I think the messaging has been difficult. I, even the even the um, failed tax reform initiative uh, bill that the legislature passed and then had to repeal. I haven't seen a whole lot of backlash against candidates over that either. So. Um, it's it's a really uh, we've seen more of it obviously the, in the last week week and a half uh, with parties trying to target um, target specific legislators for their support of the tax bill, um, but I expected that to create a little bit more blowback than it has, and so um, it's 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 hard to know how that I, I would expect that the Medicaid and the medical marijuana uh, reforms or revisions or whatever you want to call it, gutting, is going, to, is going to resonate with a narrow group of voters, but I don't think it's going to have a broader, uh, you know, widespread um, uh, consequence in the, in the turnout. The turnout's going to be high anyway. I mean, with-, with Is that, yeah, and, and tied to that, do you think that the, uh, the lack of retribution comes from just the fact that this was two years ago, or is it have national politics distracted everyone? Yeah. I think is I that think, driving turnout. I, th I think people do have short memories, but I also think that there's so much focus right now on the presidential race. There's so much focus on COVID. Everything else is just kind of fallen into the into the background a little bit. Um, and so, you know, if you're one of those people who feels strongly that 
you know, that was wrong with the legislature did to the initiatives, you're probably already politically engaged at this point and focused on voting on the presidential campaign, right? So what we're seeing is, is, is they're predicting record turnout this year. Um, we've ha already had 660,000 plus voters cast ballots uh, or had ballots processed, which is about two thirds of everybody who voted in 2016 in the presidential election. Uh, which was a high turnout election as well. Um, there, you know, they had about a million people vote in that election. And I think on the trajectory we're on, they're adding about 140, 150,000 ballots a day. You can see we're going to blow right past that before we even get to election day and in-person voting, however much that, that makes a difference. So, I mean, the, the turnout is huge. Um, how does, how does that, who does that benefit? I think, like I said, it, it probably benefits McAdams in the fourth district. It probably, you know, it, it, how it plays in the presidential campaign, I think it still stays a Trump state. Uh, obviously, I don't think there's a whole lot of um, chance that he's going to lose it. Although the Y2 analytics poll that came out a couple of weeks ago had Trump at 50, Biden at 40, which is about, uh, you know, we're, we're more used to seeing a 65-30 uh, split in this state. So you can see that um, you can see that Trump's not exactly popular in the state as a whole, and he's even less popular in the fourth district. So I think high turnout there is is going to be a factor in favor of McAdams, and and it's extremely rare. I think it's been decades since a Republican has lost a congressional district in Utah, and that could happen this year too. Oh, interesting. You want to make a forecast on Trump's vote percentage? I think he gets, he'll be over 50. He'll probably be 55, 55, 45, hmm. you know, is it, but again, that's not. That's low for him, for sure. So, um, and, and I think he, I think there's probably better than 50, 50 chance he doesn't win fourth district. So nationally, speaking of Trump, he's certainly been impacted with a lot of voters by COVID. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a similar blowback for any of Utah's politicians, be it legislators in swing districts, uh, gubernatorial candidates, that will be uh, a referendum on their response to COVID? Yeah, you know, I know the most obvious place you'd look for something like that is in the gubernatorial race, because Spencer Cox was the chair of the Coronavirus Task Force. Um, he hasn't really been seen, uh, you know, I think they're going to put him on a milk carton. We haven't really seen much in the last few months. And, and we've seen cases explode. And, and so if you, if you believe that the state's coronavirus response was inadequate um, and you want to put the blame on Spencer Cox, it makes him a pretty easy target. Um, you know, his opponent has just had a hard time doing that. Uh, I don't, I think part of it is the money. Spencer's going to outspend him, uh, outspend the Democrat by about $3 million to $80,000 or about $100,000. It's, it's, it's a blowout on the financial side. Um, and so making the message stick that the coronavirus response has been inadequate at the state level, is it, it just makes it a hard sell. Um, you know, I think, I think there are people who are going to be upset about it, but I don't know that there are going to be people whose minds are changed or you know, who wouldn't have voted otherwise, who are going to come out and vote because of that issue. Mm -hmm. um, and at the legislative level, uh, you know, I, th I think it, it, I think the legislature has been influencing the policy, but they haven't been sort of out in front of the policy. So I don't know that they've necessarily taken a, a whole lot of, um, of, of the blame for that. 
Now, you could argue that Republicans generally, Republicans writ large, because of the White House's, uh, because of President Trump's failures on the coronavirus response, because of the state's recent failures on the coronavirus response, that Republicans in general might pay a price for that. Um, but it, it, that's going to be more broad-based. I don't think it's going to be as, as, as sort of surgical. Um, but there's there are a handful of legislative races that are close enough that you know even a marginal shift could make a difference. So do you expect any uh, shift in terms of number of seats and Democrats are likely to be a super minority yeah. after this, but do you think they gain some seats? Well, so I think there are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are probably five seats that I'm watching. Um, there's a few in West Valley. There's the Craig Hall seat that that one's always, that one's always a close race. Um, Mike Winder's seat, also West Valley. He, both of them have good opponents. Uh, it's, it's uh, they're working hard. Um, Eric Hutchings in Kearns. Um, Eric used to be a Democrat. He was actually appointed to the seat as a Democrat and then changed parties. That was years ago. Um, Jim Dunnigan at Taylorsville. Uh, he, you know, he's, uh, that's a seat that probably leans Democratic, like just on the, just on the math of it. Mm -hmm. He's been in it for a long time and has been able to sort of solidify his support there. And then Cheryl Acton is the other one who I think uh, could be vulnerable. Those are, so those are the five that I'm kind of, are at the top of my list at least. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Democrats win at least two of those, probably most likely the Hutchins and Acton seat. And then the Dunnigan maybe is a, is a wild card. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit how, you know, we're talking about voters punishing politicians for, for COVID, but I wonder if there won't be even more of an impact in how COVID has made it difficult for campaigns. Yeah. Um, how do you see that impacting the ability of candidates to, to get their message out? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's clearly, it's obviously affected everything in our lives, right? But it definitely has affected the way politicians have been able to campaign. And we saw it even in the gubernatorial primary where John Huntsman was trying to get signatures and he wasn't able to get signatures, you know, fast forward a couple months. If you're a challenger who's going against an incumbent, the only real way, you're not gonna outspend the incumbent usually unless you have a lot of money of your own. The, the only way you beat him is to outwork him. You get out there and knock on doors, particularly in these legislative races. Um, it's just not been an option for, you know, you can't do the big fairs, you can't do the parades, you can't do the big gatherings. You know, the July 24th parades are always just sort of a, a real popular, political place to be, right? If you're running a campaign and it just doesn't, it didn't work that way this year because they just didn't happen. And so I think that helped the incumbents this year. It made it harder for, uh, for a challenger to get, um, to get much traction, to get the bandwidth, to get the attention. Um, and so you end up with, a, with something that's already difficult because the challengers, they, they usually lose anyway. It, made, it was made that much harder, I think. And so, um, you know, and, and, and you see that you saw that, I think, in, you know, all up and down the ticket. You know, I, th I think in the gubernatorial race, as we mentioned, it's just been hard to put a dent in, in Spencer Cox's, you know, invulnerability. Uh, in the attorney general's race, Greg Scordis, he's a really good candidate, really good resume. But you, without a lot of money, you just can't compete on the same level as, as an incumbent. Um, and that filters all the way down to, to all the legislative races too. 
Um, it's disrupted everything about this election, not just the way we vote, but the way we campaign, uh, the way candidates campaign, and, and um, has really made it uh, an odd and unusual and difficult election year for, for the challengers. Yeah. A question there on, on early voting. You know, it's something that we look at trying to understand what turnout's going to be and we compare to previous years, but there's been such an emphasis nationally on um, potential problems mm -hmm. related to mail-in balloting, which I think for most of us in Utah feels like a real head scratcher because yeah. it just seems like, well, isn't this how you do it? But do you, do you expect we'll see a similar surge on uh, Tuesday on election day, or um, do you think most people will get their voting done before and those the turnout that day might be lower than what we've had in the past? I think, yeah. I, well, and, and the clerks, the county clerks, particularly in Salt Lake County, are really discouraging people from waiting. You know, they're, they're, they're telling them, don't wait till election day. We only want on election day people who either have, have to cast provisional ballots, have ballot problems, need special accommodations. Um, they're trying to make election day as, uh, you know, as few votes as possible on election day. Um, so they're trying to get everything in. And I think, you know, based on where we are now, based on the number of votes that are coming in every day, I would be surprised if there's that many left uh, on election day. It'll, it'll still be significant. It'll still be an event. Um, I mean, the, the, the nice part about all of these early votes coming in is when we do vote by mail, oftentimes we're waiting a day or two or three or four before we start seeing, you know, before we have a really good idea of where this race is going. So particularly, again, going back to the fourth district race, you know, we were watching those, re those results rolling for a few weeks. We kept uh -huh. having ballots coming in. We've got so many ballots in now that, that we may have a better idea. We may not know, but we'll have a pretty good idea which direction these close races are going. Um, and so, and so that's, that kind of makes it good. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you're not worried about on this, you know, for those nail biters that like to watch elections and the results. I think a positive thing the state has done is to allow people to submit ballots, postmark ballots day of the election. Day, they got to be the day before now. Um, for the primary, they, you could postmark it the day of election, but they didn't extend that to the election. Hmm. So they've still got to be postmarked the day before. But yeah, I mean, I think it's um, you or you can drop them off at the at the polling location. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think it's been interesting to watch the national hand-wringing over a mail-in election because we've been doing it so long here. We're a Republican state. We've been, we've gotten national attention from, you know, everybody really about, hey, look, here's a red state that does vote by mail and everybody's not freaking out about it, even though the president is. We do need to be prepared on the national scope, though, I think, that we might not know the winner of the presidential election on election night. There are enough swing states that are close enough with enough ballots that are going to be pending that we need to prepare ourselves, you know, emotionally, mentally, whatever, to that, that we might have to wait a few days or even a week or two before we, before we get those in. I hope not, because frankly, I mean, I think it creates, the uncertainty creates a vacuum that can kind of create a lot of other problems that, that you know, that could unfold from there. But it, it is possible that we may not know the results in a state or two by, by on election day. So let's say the election turns out the way that polling is showing now. 
states like Pennsylvania. And it's clear fairly early on that Biden is the new president. Yeah. Um, and that wave continues into the Senate and even the Senate flips. How does that play out in the state of Utah for the next two years? Yeah. How would I things think, be different? I think the best gauge you have for it is to look back uh, to the eight years of the Obama administration and the way that elected leaders in the state and the legislature in the state, and even to some extent, the attorney general in the state became the resistance. You know, they became the party that's trying to obstruct or roll back or fight or sue or, you know, everything, every initiative that comes down. Um, I think one of the things you're, one of the most immediate and probably direct things that you'll likely see is that I, I would anticipate the Biden administration would restore the Grand Staircase and, and Bears Ears National Monuments. Um, I, I think he has indicated that that's something he would do. Um, and, and you can imagine that the legislature and the governor are, are gonna freak out about that. And then there'll be lawsuits on the other side. And instead of people suing to restore them, there'll be people just suing to get rid of them. And, and you know, but that's, I, I, think, I think that's the most direct, we saw this stand down, I think, from the Utah legislature over the last few years in their lawsuits or their threats of a lawsuit to try to take back the land, right? I, I think you'll see that whole thing, you know, boil up again. So I think it just kind of all of these things that we saw sort of shelved for the last four years, at least, will be taken off the shelf and we'll see them brought back out again if, if they're the party of resistance. If it goes the other way, you know, I mean, obviously then you, then you have sort of a continuation of what we've seen for the last four years. Um, with the with the state trying to work with the administration to roll back some of the environmental protections to try to keep the monuments shrunk down, um, and so yeah, I mean I think I think it could have profound, particularly on the environmental side of things, some profound consequences. I think, you know, we'll have the, the Biden administration, for example, on clean air has been, you know, espousing or at least articulating that they would like to make some progress. On, on clean air and environmental regulations. And those, I'm sure the legislature would, again, probably go to court, probably even up to the Supreme Court to try to, try to block. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it, the, there, there are consequences to elections, I think, as President Obama said, and we'll see those play out here in Utah as well as across the country. Well, Robert, we're gonna have that be the final word. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Yeah. People want to check out your column. Where do they go? Uh, at sltrib.com. Uh, you know, we're, we're all online these days. And, or you can follow me on Twitter at Robert Gerke. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today on O2 and U. Uh, for those of you uh, listening in, I'm your host again, David Garbett, the executive director of O2 Utah. You want to learn more about our organization, check us out online, uh, o2utah.org to utah.org and we're on the socials as well so until next time thank you everyone robert thank you as well thank you take care